Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. What lengths would you go to to have more of God's presence? What lengths would you go to to have more intimacy with God? I want you to just sort of weigh that in your own heart. One of the things I've realized is, is that I come to every Sunday morning and I prep a message with a certain assumption in mind. And I've realized this week that that assumption is not always true. See, I come to experience God's presence and I want as much of God as he'll give me. I want as much intimacy with God as I can have. I want as much experience with God as I can have. I want to worship God so deep, as deep as I can get. I want to be fully known by God and fully know God. And that's the way that I pursue church. So when we come here, that's what I'm after. And I write messages with that intention. One of the things I've realized is that's not true for everyone. I know there are some of you here, you're like, you know, I'm not really sure about church yet. I'm not really sure about Jesus yet. I certainly don't know about wanting more of God. And I want you to know that's okay. You are welcome here, and I hope that this is a welcoming place for you as you walk on that journey. Some of you are here, and you're like, I didn't know there was more to have. Uh, you know, I didn't know that there was more. I thought, you know, I went to church. I did the right things. I was growing up. I did that all the thing. I didn't know there was more to have. I thought I got it all. Like I didn't, you know, I thought, okay, I'm good going to heaven. I'm, I'm all set. There's more of God to have. And I want you to know that I want to walk with you as you dip your toes deeper and deeper into intimacy with Jesus. There are some of you who you have all you want. You say, you know, I've got all I need. I'm happy with my level of intimacy with God and I don't need any more. Thank you very much. I'm just going to sit here, leave me alone. Don't bother me. I'm just doing my thing. And that's okay, but can, I, I, would, I would prayerfully consider, is there more that God wants to give you? But I know that the vast majority of us deeply desire more intimacy with God. Like, when you come to this space, the goal for many of you is that I want to know God more fully. I want to experience all that God has for me. I want to worship God completely with all that I am. And I know that that's true for most of you. But what if I told you that there's just this one thing, one thing that stands in the way of that? What if I told you there's just this one thing that's so prevalent in our culture that will absolutely derail your intimacy with God? That will absolutely wreck what you desire with God? What if I told you there was this one thing that we've very much accepted as normal in our culture? We even have accepted it largely as normal in the church. We've, you know, we sort of wrap it in Christian clothing and we adopt it as a gift. We, we, we kind of make it a spiritual gift. We, we believe that we have this spiritual gift. One thing that just slips in and secretly derails our intimacy with God. I've told you there was one thing. What length would you go to to get that one thing out? What length would you go to to deal with that one thing that gets in the way? 
How far short of sin would you go to remove that? That's what I want to talk about today. You're like, what is it? Great, it worked. We began this series a few weeks ago called Change of Heart. Because we recognize, right, at the beginning of the year, everybody makes these New Year's resolutions, right? Any of you tried to go to the gym this past couple weeks? You're like, oh, I can't get a machine. But we recognize that people make all these resolutions, and what are they? They're behavior changes, right? I'm going to change my behavior in the new year. I get a fresh restart. It's January 1st. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to, you know, work out. I'm going to whatever your You make these behavior changes. But one of the things that we recognize as followers of Jesus is behavior change often falls short for one reason. Your inner inclinations didn't change. Any of you who have ever tried to quit smoking, you find there's still a craving. Everybody that I've ever talked to talks about the craving. I still have. You know, and I suppress it, but the inclinations in your heart haven't changed, which is what thwarts your ability to change uh, your behaviors. And so we recognize as followers of Jesus that we need a heart change. We need inclination change, right? And so we began this series, really the catalyst for this series, as I was praying for 2022, for this church, the belief that I have is that God is inviting this church deeper and deeper into worship, into being a church who fulfills, this is the, you, maybe you don't know this, this is the thing you were designed to do is worship God. The Bible calls Christians a kingdom of priests. Part of the function of the priest is to sum up all the praises of creation and direct them appropriately to the creator. This is what we are to do. And so at some level, church should always be that. But I think God is issuing us a special invitation to press deeper into that. So you're going to hear about various aspects of this the whole year. You won't get sick of it, I promise. But part of the things that I've realized is that if we don't have the heart of a worshiper, we can't fake our way into it, can we? There's no amount of dancing around or putting your hands in the air, right, falling on your face, all the, you know, all the things. The, act, the actions themselves don't necessarily change who you are. You need a heart change. I need a heart change. And so that's the aim here. And so in the first week, Jerry gave us this major tool that God has given us to have heart change. It's to be thankful people, right? To be people who Give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances, in all circumstances. That we are people who are inclined to gratitude, people who are thankful. This is a weapon. This is a tool that you have in your tool belt. That's the first. Last week, whenever we were talking about, I was going to preach this message, and with the ice, and I was trying to let, I hope you all felt left off, let off the hook. Like, I didn't want anybody to have a wreck on their way here. But I, I felt like, Last week, this message that I'm going to preach today has been something that God has been doing in my heart for months now. I, he just continually convicts me of this, and I felt like it was so important that I didn't want people to miss it. So last week, I talked about not being offended, not living life offended, that offense comes, right? We're all going to have offenses. You know, people are going to offend us at times, but we don't have to live in a posture of being eternally offended, even though the culture tells you you have to right? We don't have to live that way because it touches this. Today, what I want to talk about is dealing with a critical spirit. I want to talk about dealing, I'm going to cry all the way through this message because it's just so close to home. And this message I'm calling, who are you to judge? 
So would you pray with me? We just ask that God would speak to us. So Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge your presence in this room and that it's your heart, Lord, to have us be people of mercy. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us. God, I pray that you would, uh, that, that all of me would disappear and all of you would come through. Would you put your words in my mouth, God? And I pray that you would get a hold of our hearts, that you would shape us, God, that you would change us, that, we, that our hearts would be changed. Lord, would you fill me with your presence and put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to talk out of Matthew chapter 7. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7. It will come up on the screen, but there's value in knowing where it is in the book, the analog version. Um, And the point that I want to make today is a critical spirit will ruin your relationship with God. Will ruin your relationship with God. Matthew chapter 7, for those of you who don't know, is right at the end of this sermon Jesus preaches, it gets called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were to sum up what the Sermon on the Mount is, it's the way life is supposed to work in the kingdom. That if we're people who follow Jesus, if we're kingdom people, this is the way life is supposed to work. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. And we get to chapter 7, and he's just about to sum it up. This is getting to the end, the crescendo is happening, and here's what we read beginning uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says... Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, Jesus says, do not judge. And this is like the thing that gets like levied at the church, right? We're judgmental people. Why don't I want anything to do with the church? Because they're so judgmental, right? And their own book even says they're not supposed to be, right? That's the way it works. But let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to live your life without making any judgments whatsoever? Have you ever tried that? Like, think about how unhelpful this line is. Do not judge. There are many of you right now sitting here thinking about, well, where are we going to go for lunch? Let me just tell you, do not judge. Don't make any judgment whatsoever. That's not helpful, is it? Do not judge. Is Jesus actually telling us not to make any judgments? Is Jesus saying, hey, Christian, not you, but, you know, (laughs) you, you and everybody else. Good to see you, by the way. Is he saying, you're not to be a judge in a law court? I don't think that's what he's saying, but it says, do not judge. What do I do with that? And not only that, like, if you read down to verse 6, Jesus says, we're supposed to, like, make a judgment between dogs and pigs. So you just said, don't judge, and now I'm supposed to make a judgment. Or Jesus says in John uh, 7, 24, he says this, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Wait a minute. You just said, don't judge, and now you're saying to judge. What do I do? And it makes us feel a little scattered, doesn't it? 
Like, which am I supposed to do? Is Jesus crazy? We're like, well, I don't know. You know, let's do like a, let's do like a good Protestant. We're going to flip uh, to Paul because that's where we'll get some clarity in Paul. Paul's not much help. Romans chapter 2 says this. Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Okay, that's clear, right? Paul's saying don't judge. Except for in 1 Corinthians... Paul is talking about a case of incest within the church, and he says, what business of it is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So Paul says, don't judge, but then judge. And probably where you are is where a lot of people are. Make up your mind. How do we decide? And we start doing things like this, we go, well, the Bible just contradicts itself, right? I mean, I just showed you, right? It just contradicts itself all over the place. So let's just pick the parts of the Bible that we like and throw away the rest of it. So if we're judgmental people, let's just pick the parts that say judge, throw away the stuff where Jesus says don't judge, right? That's the temptation. But can I offer you a piece of pastoral advice? When you read Scripture where you find contradiction or where you find things that don't seem to line up, can I offer you this piece of advice? Hold out your judgment and decide maybe you don't quite understand the whole picture. I'm going to illustrate this right now, okay? Hold out your judgment. Don't decide the book is full of contradictions. What's actually lacking is our own understanding. This is what's actually missing. Let me show you how this plays out with our passage. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, don't judge. The word that he uses, do you guys know that the Bible wasn't written in English? Like King James wasn't the original? You know that? The Bible wasn't written in English. The Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. If you've ever taken a language class, a foreign language, one of the things that you learn is that concepts from one language and culture don't one-for-one one transfer to concepts in other languages, right? My seventh grade German class. Frau French, how do you say shut up? She says, it's not really a concept they use. They don't really say that. That's sort of an American construct. You can say, what she said is, halt die Schnauze, which just means hold your snout. But it's not a concept that they use. It doesn't one-for-one one translate. This is the mind of a seventh grader. It doesn't translate neatly. And that's what happens here. When the Bible gets translated into English, people who are making the translations are forced to choose how I'm going to explain a concept that we don't exactly have one for one. And so this word in Greek that we get translated as judge is a huge idea. It's a huge idea. And I'm going to just give you a couple of the things that it gets translated as. Gets translated as distinguish or decide. You know, I'm trying to decide between Wendy's and Subway. I'm going to judge that Subway is lunch. <laughs> Eat fresh. Or, or it gets translated as to try, as in like a law court, right? 
We're going to take it for judgment. And somebody who's qualified to read the law is going to make a decision, is going to judge it. We get, we get, it gets translated for, uh, to punish, right? If you are found guilty, the judgment is you go to jail or you pay the fine, right? This is judgment. It's the same word. It gets translated to condemn. Like one stands condemned already is judged. And so this idea is expansive, and we translate it as judge. And we go, well, Jesus says to judge here, but not to judge here. I don't know. How do I know what Jesus is forbidding? How do I know? And so Jesus tells us this story to give us context. This is the way that you understand what word is implied here. Verse 3 says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's an exaggerated story to make a point, right? I mean, can you imagine somebody with a two-by-four just walking around just looking and looking at Micah and going, I see a speck in your eye. Can you imagine how ridiculous this is? Like, this is intentionally ridiculous, which is to say that apparently this guy with the two-by-four doesn't know that he has a two-by-four in his own eye. I don't know how that works. It doesn't fit. It's a little bit big. But he doesn't know that there's a plank in his own eye, and yet he wants to. To help you with the speck in your eye. He's very, very concerned. But here's the thing. Anybody with a two-by-four sticking out of their own eye. I wish I had a log here. Anybody who in this position is uniquely unqualified to perform eye surgery. Would you not say that's true? I can't see very well to get the little bit out of your eye. Certainly the speck is irritating, but probably not as irritating as the plank. And Jesus is saying, who do you think you are to look at someone else's eye when you have such a big problem in your own? Who do you think you are? You have no business being so concerned with someone else's issues because you have a giant issue. And this could be that Jesus is saying, yeah, you struggle with the same things that get said elsewhere. Or it could be that Jesus is like, well, you have a lot of sin issues too. That's also possible. Or it could be that Jesus is saying, no, you have a critical spirit that uniquely disqualifies you to make judgments on someone else. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And yet we're so bold to think that we can get the little bit out of your eye. So bold. And this is the understanding that gives us context to understand what Jesus is trying to say. It's not that Jesus is forbidding us to make assessments about things. It's not saying Jesus is like, well, you have to like forego understanding right and wrong. Or you can't uh, you know, make a, a, a decision as a judge in a law court. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is forbidding. I have a hard time with this word. You ready? Censoriousness. Am I saying that right? Commentators call it censoriousness. It's having a critical spirit. 
It's being hypercritical, always looking at someone else trying to determine what's wrong with them, always digging and happy to find the things that don't work and are wrong about their life. It's making a, a snap judgment about people and being completely unconcerned about not having enough information. It's making deep value judgments and, and worth and character judgments on someone without knowing them completely. It's deciding you know why someone did something without ever giving them an opportunity to explain. What's completely off limits in the Christian life is deciding you know the motive of why somebody else did something. Completely off limits. It's not even in the realm of things that we're supposed to touch. Jesus is not saying we can't say, well, yeah, I know what's right and wrong. But it's rather the short step from going, that is a right behavior or a wrong behavior, to saying that person is right or that person is wrong. And deciding that I can condemn them completely. It's so prevalent in our culture, isn't it? Don't you see this like all over the place? Maybe you, some of you are like, I don't really see it. Let me help you. It doesn't seem to matter in our culture whether you're a Christian or not. One of the values that we have in our culture is to criticize everything. To be critical and make value judgments of everyone. The difference is, if we're Christians and we do it, we just say we're discerning people. Ouch. Is that hitting a little bit close? Have we said this? I'm, I, I just want you to know, I'm saying this stuff to myself. This is something God is working every day, seemingly, in me. We commit this sin as a Christian and we cloak it in hyper-spiritual terms, don't we? The Spirit of God told me that they're a bad person. I'm just discerning. I'm just being discerning, right? And what it is is a critical spirit. I want to demonstrate it to you. This is, I, I'm going to take this risk, but I think it's worth it. Think of all the political buzzwords that you hear. Got quiet. Think of all the political buzzwords that you hear. I'm going to share two of them with you, and I want you to pay attention to what happens inside of you when I say them. Ready? If I talk about my Second Amendment rights, what happens inside of you? Some of you go, that means you believe this about abortion, you believe this about immigration, you believe this about this. You probably are this kind of person, and maybe you like that kind of person, or maybe you don't like that kind of person. But inside of you, when I said that, you were like, the list came up, didn't it? What about this one? If I said, black lives matter, did it flip? Does it flip inside you? You're like, well, that means you're this about gay marriage, this, you're this about this, you're this about you know, all these things. And that means you probably are this kind of person, right? That's what happens. This is like a grand scale. Like, this happens every day. All of our political stuff is built around a critical spirit. It's hard to see because we just think we're being discerning. And yet we impute motive and we, impute, we just make value judgments about people's character 
based on things like this. And then we can't understand why we don't connect with people. But it happens on a lower scale too, doesn't it? Like this is the exaggerated part. How many of you actually know the famous people that you follow on social media? Most of you, I would say probably none of us actually know these people, and yet we make value judgments based on something that they posted or something that we saw they did, right? How many of you saw Bob Saget died? How many of you made a value judgment about what kind of person Bob Saget was? I'm just throwing myself in there too. I'm saying this not to like, I'm, I promise you, I'm not trying to like hurt anybody. I want you to just see how prevalent this is. Think about the person who's always late to work, unless that person is you. Everybody knows who I'm talking about, too. The person who's always late to work. What value judgments do you make on that person? They're probably this kind of person. They're lazy. They're this. They're that. And the other thing. And if you're the person who's always late, that's what everybody else thinks about you. Don't we do that, though? We assign motive, and we've just decided that you just don't care about this job, and we don't have enough information to decide. But we do it. We say we're discerning people, don't we? It's a critical spirit, and it will ruin your relationship with God. It will ruin it. And I'm going to show you in a minute how that is. So Jesus says, don't judge or you will be judged. Some translations put it a little bit differently. If you like King James, you like NRSV, there's more of a cause and effect happening. It says this in the NRSV, it says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. So that. Why not, Jesus? Verse 2 says this, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now we could take probably at least two different meanings of this, right? One meaning is Jesus is offering us great social advice. You know, the people who are jerks to you and just, you know. No? Okay, great. The people who are critical of you and just pick you apart, how likely are you to give them grace? Honestly. I mean, Jesus is here, so don't lie. How likely are we to give them grace? Although the people who give you grace all the time and they're super kind and they're like, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. You extend the same to them, right? So there's probably a principle here, a social principle that works. If you're a jerk to somebody else, they're probably going to be a jerk to you, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus is after. What Jesus is actually after is the second way we understand the verse. And it's like this. The way you judge other people, that's how God will judge you you. There's all kinds of places. I will cut them for the moment, just for time. There's all kinds of places in Scripture where that happens, where the way that you judge God to be, the way you judge someone else to be is how God judges you. That's a scary thought, is it not? That's the way God judges you. John Wesley, you guys know John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, said this in, uh, about verse 2. He said, With whatever measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. Awful words. So we may, as it were, choose for ourselves whether God shall be severe or merciful to us. God and man will favor the candid and benevolent, 
but they must expect judgment without mercy, those who have shown no mercy. Is that a scary thought? When you think about how you judge other people, again, I'm talking to myself. I hope you guys can come along with me. Do you want God to judge you that way? I mean, this is terrifying. If you're, if, like, if we're not, this is a terrifying thought. Because I'm not kind sometimes. I've spent a lot of time in the past couple of months repenting for lots and lots of attitudes that I've had. We have this tremendous capacity that's God-given to evaluate things, don't we? This ability to make judgments, to discern things, to make decisions. It's God-given. The concern with a critical spirit is that you would not extend the same mercy that God extends. That's the concern. That's the fear with being a critical person. We expect mercy ourselves, don't we? But we don't want to give it to other people. You ever think about the person who blows by you on the highway? Have you ever done this, right? The person that goes, on 99, you're like, I hope there's a cop up there. You do it, don't you? And you know where the cop sits, and you're like, let's see, right? There's a little bit of you that's like, get him. But when you're running late, and you go flying by other people, you're like, it's okay. I'm late to work. I'm going to make it. Right? You want them to give you mercy that you wouldn't give in reverse. We all do this to varying degrees. I want to demonstrate. I'm going to do an object lesson, and we'll, we'll finish this way. The re- I want to show you why a critical spirit will ruin your relationship with God. I need, like, three volunteers. One, two, three. And you've got to have good knees. That'll work. Okay, come on up. You can just stand right there for a minute. So we worship every week, right? And we take this posture before God. And whether you actually do it or you figuratively do it, we kneel. We bow our hearts to God, don't we? There's this song that Jeremy Riddle wrote. It's called Be Enthroned. And the line goes like this. It says, be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations. You are worthy, Lord of all. Unto you, the slain and risen king, we lift our voice with heaven, singing, worthy, Lord of all. And that's actually what's happening, right? Like the last song that we sang is exactly it. In our worship, we put God on the throne, Right? This is my makeshift throne. It's beautiful, isn't it? I don't have a nice-looking chair. I'm going to move this. You guys know Matt. Everybody say hi, Matt. You know Micah. Everybody say hi, Micah. Tell me your name. Jaden. Say everybody say hi, Jaden. So we're going to do this object lesson, and we're going to worship. We're going to... Oh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take like a kneeling posture. Two of you over here, one of you over here. Okay? And what we do when we worship is we take an appropriate posture before God. Right? That in our praises, we enthrone him as the king. We take this posture, which is the right posture before the Lord. 
and we lift him up. And in our praises, he is made king in our lives. He is the king, but we magnify him as such. That's what I was telling you about. As people, we are priests of the Lord. So we worship God appropriately. We direct our worship appropriately. I want you guys just to stay there. Are you comfortable? You can like sit back a little bit if you don't want. You don't have to like get all stretched out. But when we have a critical spirit, we do something else. See, we take this posture on Sunday. and We praise the Lord, right? We worship him. And we put him on the throne. But when we have a critical spirit, we start doing things like this. We get up on Sunday and we start to leave and we're like, that jerk parked me in. I can't believe it. I can't move. Whose car is that? Jesus, you should get him. Don't we? Am I the only one that's done this? And we start, and we start, we, we, we leave, and we're like, what are they waiting at that stop sign so long? Jesus, let me just help you here. Let me help you. We find that person who's late at work, and we're like, I can't believe they don't take this seriously. Right? It starts innocent enough, they're late. Jesus, come on. You should give them, give them a little something. Hold on, Jesus. Just scoot over a little bit. Right? And we decide the reason they're late is because they don't respect any of us. You know, Micah's late to work. He doesn't respect any of us. You know, I'm, I'll, I don't know, buy you lunch or something. He doesn't care. He probably wastes all his time playing video games. Come on, Jesus. Help me out here. You know, Geiner is just, man, he's just, he's not a trustworthy person. That's not true about Geiner at all, if you know him. He's not trustworthy. You know, he's probably super disrespectful. He's, he's a jerk. Scoot over, Jesus. You're not being hard enough on him. And over time, we keep scooting over. We keep scooting over. Until eventually we're like, Jesus, just let me do this. Why don't you sit down there with them? Let me do this. I do it better than you do. I can give Micah what he deserves. I can give Jaden what he deserves. I can give Geiner what he deserves. They all deserve judgment. All of them. Jesus, you're just being too kind. You're too merciful. And what happens over time is we push Jesus off of the throne... And it wouldn't happen all at once. See, Satan doesn't do that. It's not overt. It begins seemingly innocuous, right? I'm just being discerning. I'm just discerning rightly, and Jesus is just being too nice. He's just being too kind. I'm using my discernment. Pat me on the back. I'm, the Spirit of God is speaking to me, right? And now I start leveling my judgments on people. And when I worship, it's a patronizing song. God, you're so worthy. You're so worthy. Stay down there. You're so worthy. We're trying to worship a God who's beneath us. And part of the reason that the posture that we take when we worship God is so important 
It's because we worship him because he's the one who can make right judgments. He's the one who doesn't judge partially. He doesn't judge unjustly. That he gives his life in mercy for people. And when we take a throne that we cannot, that we're not qualified to sit on, we start to find ourselves going, where's God? I don't feel him anymore, except under my foot. Where's God? I just feel like, and then we start doing this, right? We start judging worship even. How crazy. These, see, Geiner's just worships so, it's just, he just looks like a fool the way he worships. He's just so emotional. Man, Micah's just, you know, he's like weeping. I don't know, this is, and we judge worship. We've put ourselves on a throne that we're not qualified to sit on, and we judge a thing that we're not qualified to judge. And we sit here. We were all on the same floor at the foot of the cross at one point, and now we're not. And God feels so far away because I have made myself him. And I judge all of these people. And what happens over time is I make snap judgments about who they are, and I start judging everything, don't I? I become critical of everything. I don't trouble myself with finding enough information to make a right judgment. I am, I have made myself God now. And everybody has to bow to me. And I sort of expect Jesus to worship me, don't I? Oh, Derek, your judgments are so good. You do it so much better than I do. Again, we'd never say that, but we live that way, don't we? You can't worship a God who's beneath your feet. We judge people's experience of who God is. We look at people who pray differently than us, and we say, gosh, they must not be as spiritual as me. Look, they don't even know the come Holy Spirit prayer. What's wrong with them? We just judge people's relationships with Jesus. People whose hearts are inclined to him. And I say this because I've been in this place. I think God wants freedom for us. The beautiful thing, the good news, is that God is a pursuer. That when we find ourselves in this posture, God is a pursuer. He wants relationship with you and me more than we want it with him. God wants freedom for me and you more than we want it ourselves. And the freedom is from this critical spirit. We all uncomfortable now? I think you guys, you guys can get up. It's, thanks for being our illustration. Here's what I think what, what God wants to do today. I think God wants to set us free. We can't pretend to be people who worship God. We actually have to be people who enthrone him. We can't pretend. And the bad news and the good news all at the same time is that we can be right 
We can be free. We can be set free. But there's not a beautiful way off of that throne. It looks messy sometimes. Putting Jesus back where he belongs, it means we fall off. But I think I want to give us that opportunity today because I've been taking that almost daily. So here's what I want to do. I think it's a lot of us. Maybe you're not all the way, you've not, you know, you're not judging worship and judging other people's prayer life and judging other people's experience of God. Maybe you're not that far. Or maybe you are. But maybe you find yourself everywhere you go, you've got a critical thing to say. I feel like I'm prone to it. I'm a five on the Enneagram. I see all the things that are wrong with everything and tend to be the kind of person that doesn't mind to say so. And this is a daily repentance for me. But that's the way forward. See, the only way free from this is repentance, which is not saying I'm sorry. It is that. It's more than that. It's choosing to walk a different way, to think a different thought. It's making an about face and going a different way. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.